Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. Year in Review, the year 1956. And welcome to Gilda Films Podcast. I'm, as always, Christian, joined here by Brett and joined again by Zay. If you are still listening to us uh, from our last episode, we were talking about the Best Picture nominees and winner of 1956. That being the illustrious and, as the two said, amazing film that was Around the World in 80 Days. They loved it. They can't say anything bad about it. Anyway... We are back here after being sued by the Quaker Oats industry (laughs) and also losing the Quaker audience and the Yul Brenner audience to talk about more films that were released in 1956, some of them nominated for Academy Awards, some of them not, making big impacts on both our viewing and 1956 in general. So, yeah. Hello, Brett. Hello. Hello, Zay. Hi. All right. Yeah. Let's just say I'm much more excited about talking about these films compared to talking about the Best Picture nominees from this year. Just throwing that out there. I'm pretty sure the most of these were under two hours. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, so we'll go in alphabetical order. And so Zay, I believe you have our first movie up here. Take us away. Our first film of the evening or whatever time of day you're listening to this podcast at. The Girl Can't Help It, directed by Frank Tashlin. And it is a film basically that's like in two parts. One part is just a big musical mashup of a bunch of hot artists at the time doing random music numbers for no good reason. And the other half is about Jane Mansfield as someone people are trying to hire as an up-and-coming singer because she has a great look to her but there's only one problem she can't sing worth a damn and so they're trying to get it to where she can they can fake it making her look like a singing star when really in actuality she can't that's based that's a very basic premise but the film itself is a lot more stylish than it is plot heavy i think And I just really enjoy its use of rock and pop music of the time in order to continue on with the story, even though originally they did that to satirize pop music, but people took it the other way. and was like, oh yeah, pop music is hella cool. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think that was my favorite aspect as well. Um, You know, on, on the one hand, having this story with Jane Mansfield and, you know, possibly becoming a star even though that's not really what she wants you know that that's that was really interesting as well but i was really drawn to like the music in the movie and the rock and roll and seeing some of these famous artists on screen and it was just a it was a fun movie i was it was one that was really easy to sit down and turn on and watch and enjoy and um i found james mansfield really charming in it and so yeah i enjoyed it 
Um, <clears throat> it's all right. <laughs> uh, I think Zay probably figured that out through the text that I sent you. Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't know what this is going to be about. I like Jane Mansfield from what I've seen and, you know, her story about how she died. Mm-hmm. Um, but this to me was a concert film first with a secondary story second. I liked all the concert stuff, the rock and roll music, seeing Little Richard before he got like, you know, Little Richard, whatever that would be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have much to say about this just because I don't think I cared for it as much as you guys did. Like, it's fine. I can definitely understand the impression that it made, like, as written down on people like Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Zay, you wrote down John Waters. I can definitely see that. Um, yeah. You're going to hate me. I'm sorry. No, especially coming to, like, the idea with John Waters for those... I'll bring in the John Waters fans after we got rid of all the mixer and you'll bring her one. <laughs> um, um, definitely, if you watch like his early stuff up until like Pink Flamingos, I think he would constantly just throw in pop songs into his early works. And I think this film really influenced that, especially in Pink Flamingos that does use The Girl Can't Help It when Divine is walking down the street. Um, Which that's a thing because like I even texted you. I did not know that that song is this movie, pretty much. Like, yeah. it was before yeah. this. Same. I was amazed, because I know that song. Yeah. You hear, like, a lot of things. Like, you said Pink Flamingos. I've heard it on TV commercials. And Fergie literally sampled it. Where? Um, For London Bridge, right? I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. It was one of her three hit songs. Anyway. Yeah. I was thinking, though, if we were to make this movie today, because this is something that hasn't been around in a long time, um, this kind of musical, who would be in this movie? Who has the looks but can't sing? I meant more of just, like, the artists. Like, what Uh, artists would they Oh, okay. I, I thought you were saying... Oh, Trying to carry her star turn, I guess. And, <laughs> um, that um, was the Smurfs, actually. We'd Lady, probably see the weekend. I mean, like he's in everything now. So the bad thing is, I could for some reason see more B-list people. Like I couldn't see Lady Gaga in something. Oh like no! That. Oh yeah, no. I no. Could see, like, to me, the weekend is a B-lister. He's pretty popular. I'd see like Lizzo, someone who's like pretty mm-hmm. popular but still hasn't like made superstar status yet. Yeah, I could see that. I could see Sia. Mm. Yeah, and then you have to throw in somebody country. <laughs> eh. See, that's the thing, though. Is it like that's why it's so difficult because this this film coming out when rock and roll was really like coming into its own and just this really new baby. thing. It was like, a baby. And yeah. And so influential, like it's like, we're not experiencing that right now, at least that I know of. That's valid. So it's like, a, it, it's hard to think of. It's like it's what's just, coming musical genre of the day. Just really weird. Like PC computer noises. That's just Grimes <laughs> and Charlie XCX. <laughs> We got Skrillex in this movie. 
Um, I don't yeah, know any of these people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Grimes is the one dating that, um, Elon Musk. Is any um, of them Lin Manuel Miranda? God <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. That's a good question, though. I don't know. I, I yeah, I think the weekend. I think Lizzo for sure. We'd see people like that in it. But I don't know. Yeah, for me, like it wasn't a great film. You know, it was like three, three and a half stars for me. But it was just like it was just I enjoyed it, and that influence even if it shouldn't play a role in how much I enjoy the film, it does play a role. Just thinking about like this influencing music, influencing movies, influencing directors, yet being such a kind of a small film that we don't hear about quite as often as we do others from this year. And so I, I think I cool. like it because it does feel different from other movies from this year. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, it feels like one of those like, Hey, we're going to have like all these different stars saying in this. But it's definitely different because they don't have like stars of the stage like singing. They have rock and roll. So it's definitely a tipping point to change things. Yeah. And it's just so bubbly and like most of the plot details just don't matter. And I think that's what I really loved about this movie. Mm. Also, after I have Christian and Brett know this, that I had picked this film because in the middle of watching it, I was like, oh, I could talk about this more than the original movie I picked, which was Bus Stop, which was a movie I did not remember as well as I thought I had. <laughs> yeah, that movie's weird. Interesting movie. Did you like this movie more than Bus Stop? 100%. There we go. 100%. Yep. Good switch. I hadn't gone to Bus Stop yet, so. You're fine. Yeah, you can skip it. All right, so some little factoids from this movie. It won one Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer for an Actress in Jane Mansfield. I feel like that's a category they should bring back. I just think it's nice. Yeah. Uh, made about $6.2 million at the box office. Um, Elvis was wanted by the producers to be in this, but his agent demanded too much money. Um, he was also supposed to be in Bus Stop. But I'm guessing it's the same thing there, too. All right. Interesting. So, yeah, good movie. Girl Can't Help It. Check it out. If you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. All right. Christian, I believe you've got our next one. Indeed. So, this is a remake. I wanted to pick it because I wanted to see it because I love the original movie. But it is high. And from the IMDb plot... In simple terms, a spoiled heiress must choose among three suitors. Her jazz musician, ex-husband, a stuffy businessman, and an undercover tabloid reporter. I will add, this is a musical. Uh, so I made y'all watch, like, what, two musicals? Three, but the girl can't help it. So we watched a lot of musicals for this. And it stars Grace Kelly and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. And it is a remake of The Philadelphia Story, which was Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, James Stewart. Brett didn't know this. I kind of rocked his world when I mentioned, hey, have you seen that? He's like, wait, why would I have seen it? Well, it's a remake. Um, It is definitely a lesser version of that story. I mean, when you make a remake of something that's perfect and add music to it, it ain't going to be like the same. It's a lot of jazz music. So that's like heavy. Like, so we just talked about rock and roll. Now this is jazz. Um, 
But yeah, it was nominated for two Oscars for Best Song, True Love, which for the life of me, I cannot remember what that song is in that movie because there is a much better song in that movie uh, sung by Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong plays a character called Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Incredible in it. And also Best Score of Musical. Uh, and it was also directed by Charles Walters. And yeah, it was okay. I Again, I just wanted to pick it because I wanted to see it because I love the Philadelphia story. I know Zay does too. And Brett, you're like a new recruit to loving it. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah, as someone, the Philadelphia story is one of my all time faves. Um, so, coming into this, I was like, okay, I know like all the essential beats. Um, but then watching this, I was like, oh, we're going to stop the film to have a weird song that's not very good over and over again. I cannot tell you any songs in this. Because I was just watching it and I was like, mm, mm. I guess the only one I truly liked was when Frank Sinatra was singing with Louis Armstrong. I liked that one. Wait, now you has jazz? I think so. That's Bing Crosby. Is it? Yes. Oops. Well, my credibility on this podcast has been. <laughs> but no. yeah, it's just, I like the quickness of the Philadelphia story. I like how snappy it is. The humor there just translates so fucking well. And then it gets to this the cast isn't right for it, I don't think. And mm. just making it in a musical where the humor stops, just, I don't think it meshes as well for me. Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of struggled because I watched the Philadelphia story like a day or two before I watched this, both first time watches. Um, loved the Philadelphia story like the two of you. And so when I got to this one, it, it was hard to like, on one hand, it's like, okay, I, I want to watch this and like kind of judge it on its own, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a remake. And so I can't, I, it's natural to compare it to the Philadelphia story. And it's obviously not on the same level. Um, but I don't know. I, I like the songs actually. I, I liked the Now You Has Jazz. I thought that was awesome. Um, I agree. It should have been up for best song that year. And I just, I don't know. I, I think another issue of mine was that it was far too easy to tell what was new and what was pulled from the original down to lines of dialogue, especially like watching them back to back. You hear this great, awesome dialogue in the original. And in this one, you hear great lines of dialogue mixed in with average dialogue. And so it was too easy to tell where they pulled and where they didn't. So I don't think in this, Grace Kelly is right for this role. She's definitely no Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. No. You know, I've only seen Grace Kelly in dramas, and she really is meant for a drama. Like a comedy like this, it's a lighthearted comedy, whatever, but it ain't it. No, I agree. Well, it's like you said, Zay, the cast is pretty much miscast here because Grace Kelly's young. And then it's like, okay, well, her ex-husband is Bing Crosby, who at this point is like almost 50, like middle 50s. So, But that's Hollywood for you in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think of everybody, the one I liked the most was Celeste Holm because I, I thought, you know, her character was given a nice role in this and... I just like Celeste Holm in general. So, I mean, of course, I liked her in this as well. But I don't know. I, I kind of agree. I mean, especially when you watch the original and see the great chemistry between 
Jimmy Stewart and um, Catherine Hepburn and everybody in that one going to this one where it's really cool to see Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra together. And it's really cool to see Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong together. So that kind of has its own quality, but doesn't mean they're exact fits for the roles. Um, so I'm a little fun facts here. This was Grace Kelly's last film before becoming Princess of Monaco. Yeah, just it's very interesting that this is 56, and then that whole time after she didn't work, she just princessed it up, I guess. And then she died in a car accident from a brain hemorrhage. Don't ask me why I know that. <laughs> Fun fact there. Um, this made five million or so at the box office, which it cracked the top 10. So that's interesting. And the biggest fun fact of them all is that this was not nominated for best original story. Well, Christian, why does that matter? Well, nominated for best original story was a movie called High Society, but it was involving a group called the Bowery Boys, which was like a film series at the time. And it confused voters into thinking that, <laughs> into thinking this was the movie they were nominating, but they were nominated that movie instead. So there are two versions of High Society in name only that were nominated this year. And wow. My yeah. favorite part of that story was like, y'all didn't care about our last movies. So we think this one might be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was like a film series. So it's like out of the blue. <laughs> Take it and run. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's fine. It definitely watched the Philadelphia story. If you want to see you know, a musical by all means, but Philadelphia comes first by yeah. all regards. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad I told you because I like, <laughs> I, I should have told you way sooner because I feared you would have watched this, loved it, watched Philadelphia and been like, Philadelphia's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, Philadelphia is definitely the better of the two. So, all right. Are we ready to move on to our next movie? Wait. Y'all see Princess of Monaco? <laughs> Princess of Monaco, starring Nicole Kidman. No, don't. It's terrible. That's what I've heard. Anyway, now we can continue. Does it feature high society? <laughs> no, it's like I think it's like it's either right. No, no, no. It's after she's done filming because Hitchcock is trying to convince her to come back and do a film with him. The devil mm. works hard, but the spirit of Judy Garland works harder. <laughs> <laughs> we just gained the Judy fans. There you go. All right, Christian, I think you've got our next one as well. I do. This is one of my faves. All right. So it is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Don Siegel. The quick summary, a small town doctor learns that his that the population of his community is being replaced by emotionless alien duplicates. Ooh, it's a sci-fi movie. But yes, so the whole premise is that these pods somehow arrive at Earth and they duplicate people once they fall asleep and they become so emotionally detached from the rest of the world that they start to be like, oh, you have emotions. Let's get them, boys. And changing to the pod people, which is like a phrase that is in common lexicon today. Um, for me, uh, which we can discuss about, it is 
a big message on the Red Scare of the 50s. I definitely see it as, and I, I mean, I even have it written down stuff, but like McCarthyism, the fear of the Red Scare, fear of the unknown, mind, can, mind taking over different ideologies, yada, yada, yada. What say you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people see this movie and take it as, you know, that, yeah, the pod people are communists and they are taking over our society and infecting all of us. I first watched this movie in a, a film class in college and the way it was presented to me was that it's some people take it that way and some people take it as the pod people are HUAC and we think they're on our side. We think they're here to protect us and they're actually here to destroy us um, as a society. And so that's why I love it. I, I don't know. I, I can see it both ways. And you know, if it's, if it's a damnation of communism, that's obviously not what, you know, that's not well-aged. I don't really buy into that, but just the way it represents that era and in a scary fashion, I, I love this movie. I have both times I've seen it, so. Um, this is, I think this is my third time seeing it. Um, a movie I've always liked. I like the 70s remake quite a bit more though, but, um, I recently, I've more read it as being scared of communism. Mm -hmm. I tried to read it the other way and I just couldn't wrap my brain around it too much. Um, and then for that, it, it got a little sillier for me into like a more of like into its B movie like roots. Mm -hmm. But overall, while watching many B movies from this time, this was excellently made and mm -hmm. still pretty well written, all things considered um so yeah it's it's an iconic movie and honestly the most iconic thing about it is watching gizmo watch it in gremlins <laughs> and he's just petrified yeah i like how the pod people that phrase because i looked it up yesterday when like looking for facts but it's like i said it's part of everyday culture well not everyday but you hear it in other things and it means the sense of like, you're getting, you, you are emotionally detached. Like you can just be like, yes, welcome to Gilded Films. <laughs> Long pause, join us. <laughs> well, that's what it is before Brett edits it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is also like Zay said, the remake is pretty good. The remake is like, it's kind of scary, especially that ending shot. Ooh boy. Um, but lest we forget the Nicole Kidman remake. Oh, which could. Daniel Craig. <laughs> there's, also own, an, there's like a 90s remake too. I haven't seen that one. I own the Nicole Kidman one. Okay. I, don't know, but I assume this is very influential for a lot of movies. Oh, but, it has to be. Um, some fun facts. Originally meant to have humorous moments. There was so much about the humorous moments thing. I like. I really couldn't get into it but test audiences laughed at certain parts and I can see it. Like when she's so desperate to fall asleep in the caves, it's like, just fall asleep, just do it. <laughs> like you can barely run as it is girl. It don't matter. Um, about two and a half million at the box office. It really wasn't a smash. And AFI's 100 top 10, top 10 series, number nine science fiction. So, I mean, and like Zay said, very B picture in that range more well made 
So to be number nine in AFI, that's like influential movies for reasons. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that, honestly, but I love it because I, those 1950s sci-fi movies, you know, coming out about, you know, throughout the time of the Red Scare, I love just watching those films. They're just very interesting. And this is my favorite for sure. So. That, that's my favorite era of sci-fi, the 50s. Yeah. I noticed, Zay, you watch like a lot of that mixed with like the B-horror stuff. Oh. It can be good. It's like fun to hate. Hate to like, this fun to hate. This and Forbidden Planet were my only two good ones from this year. Y'all want some shit? Mm. Watch The Indestructible Man. <laughs> it's like a Frankenstein noir film. Sounds interesting. Trust me, it's not the mole people, <laughs> the she creature. Oh my God. Wow. Oof. But yeah, I, I do think it does a nice job of like creating this sense of dread and like not knowing who you can trust. And it's easy to see how that fits in that time period. So not sure how the guy is as a doctor, though, at times. It's like, hmm, this kid's definitely got some stuff going on. Let's just throw him some drugs and see what happens. So, uh, but aside from that, <laughs> but yeah, I love it. All right. Any final thoughts on Invasion of the Body Snatchers before we move on? Mm, great triple feature, though. I mean, I can't believe there's that many versions of this story out there, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying the Nicole Kidman one is great, but hey, you can watch I, it. I, don't care. I heard the 90s one is legitimately great. I'd see that one. No, I, I haven't seen it. it. I've seen the Nicole Kidman one, and it is not good. Okay. So again, our next film, what we commonly see, especially in earlier Oscar years, is that sometimes they, they took a while to catch up on international cinema. So our next film was actually released in 1954 in Italy, or it was made, um, but was eligible for these Oscars and did win Best Foreign Language Film this year. And it is Federico Fellini's La Strada. And so this is the story of a woman who lives with her mother and siblings. Um, and she's kind of presented as if she has some sort of um, mental illness or mental disability. And so she is technically bought by this traveling circus guy, this traveling strong man named Zampano. And goes out on the road with him after her sister, who was previously on the road with him, has died. We don't know why or how that happens. Um, that's just how it begins. And so we go along, and she is basically mistreated by this person. And they kind of go through these trials and tribulations with other circus folks and with common folks in Italy at this time. And it all leads to a violent climax that kind of shakes her to her core. And so um, lead character is played by Giulietta Messina, who is Federico Fellini's wife and was in a number of his films. And she is absolutely awesome here. Um, I love Italian cinema, um, especially neorealism, which, you know, this, <laughs> this is kind of like tail end of that, but I think it does fit in in some ways because um, they are, you know, definitely pre presenting common folks in Italy at this time of economic downturn after World War II. And so 
really interesting road movie and um, characterization, characterization between these two characters. So discuss. Um, this is a movie while watching it. I was just like, it's fine. And I was just like, this is my third Fellini now. And I'm like, maybe Fellini's just not my thing. But then I sat with him more and more and I was like, wait a minute, this kind of touched me. And I was just like, I really don't enjoy the relationship these two had. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, maybe that was sort of the whole point of this movie. Because I was, you know, in 1956, we're watching mostly Hollywood, Hollywood movies. And I was like, but Italian films are trying to say so much more. And I think they're really pointing out that like, yeah, this man really fucked up. And to have this sort of arc overall of just seeing the relationship change and how she eventually is like, oh, I don't have to stay in this sort of thing. And then in the end, he's like, oh, I did mess up. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, I still didn't, I expected it to be a higher value just because of everything I've heard about this movie beforehand, but I still really enjoyed it. Sure. Christian? Uh, this is my second time seeing it. I think I wrote in this review that the first time I clearly wasn't paying attention because I remembered nothing about it this time. Great study on human beings, which Fellini does well. Um, it's Juliana, right? Uh, Julieta. Julieta. I always want to say Juliana. Julieta is such a, like you said, a freaking great actress in this. Because I've seen it from Nights of Cabiria, which was 57 yeah that's my like personal favorite best actress one of that year because she's so good in that and this she doesn't really have a whole lot to say but she acts with those eyes those eyes mm-hmm. are huge they're enormous they're beautiful and you see all her pain suffering sorrow and her wonder of like maybe this friendship can work maybe i can like tame the savage beast in him because he's such a fucking asshole to her mm-hmm. you know but yeah i don't think it's my favorite fellini but it's I mean, not like I've seen a whole lot. Knights yeah. of Capiria is my favorite. And then Same. eight and a half. And then eight and a half. Who yeah. else have I seen? And then this, probably. But yeah, it's good. Americord. <laughs> Americord wasn't very good. Mm. See, I don't see, remember Americord. Yeah. Did you see that horror anthology where Jane Fonda and Peter Fonda are lovers? Yeah. See, uh, the. He directed the third one in that. Okay. Well. Interesting. <laughs> that's straight Fellini stuff <laughs> I'm not going to be like one of those film bros like oh Fellini my life like I've seen a few Fellini they're fine the two eight and a half and Knights of Kabir are where it's at but like yeah. Julietta amazing in this and Anthony Quinn is good I'm assuming he was probably dubbed by a different actor's voice yeah I could kind of tell at times yeah because that's yeah. like the thing and Anthony Quinn is not an Italian whatsoever yeah so. Yeah, but I mean, speaking of Knights of Kabir, because I agree, it's my favorite Fellini, followed by Eight and a Half. Um, but like, Julieta Messina's performance in that is much different than her performance in this. Like, it's much louder, but she's, like, freaking brilliant in both of them. And so, like, um, it's just, she's one of those where it's hard for me to picture anybody else in this role, especially the way she tells the story with her face. And so... She's definitely a highlight. And Anthony Quinn, like you said, is good too. So, This was my first movie with her and I was very impressed. Yeah, she's great. That last scene on the beach um, with Anthony Quinn, I, re- 
rewound rewound yes i have a vhs player whatever <laughs> um, i saw this on criterion channel but i mean just like that scene where he's pretty much sitting on the beach and then he starts breaking down over what he's learned and what's happened it's like damn this is a really good performance from you yeah like compared to because he did win supporting actor for another movie which will probably highlight and honorable mentions but i mean this is that was a great role they're two both great roles in this yeah I was a little distracted by the ADR in that same scene of the woman singing. It's yeah. just, it's wild. <laughs> and I was just like, that's not what that would sound like. <laughs> you sing that again? Oh, this song? And then just, wow, out of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I just want a quick note because on this topic of like when international films are eligible, there was another Italian film this year that was eligible for Oscars, and I didn't realize until much later. It's called Umberto D. Ugh. I would have picked it if I had realized. I probably would have picked it if I had realized because that movie is freaking phenomenal. Vittorio De Sica, my favorite Italian director. We'll get to that in honorable mentions, but check that one out too. So, all right. Um, yeah, so like I said, this did win Best Foreign Language Film, and this is the first year where Foreign Language Film was its own award. It was kind of more of an honorary thing before that point. Um, Best Original Screenplay it was nominated for. This is a favorite film of Pope Francis. Hey, this is my favorite film. We're watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um Walt Disney wanted to create an animated feature about the lead character here. Um, I can't remember how to pronounce her name. I'm sorry. But it's described by Fleeney as a complete catalog of my entire mythological world, a dangerous representation of my identity that was undertaken with no precedent whatsoever. And as a result, he suffered a nervous breakdown during filming, which probably inspired Eight and a Half, I imagine. Most likely. Yeah, so... That ain't special. You know how many times I had a nervous breakdown in college? I didn't get an Academy Award. <laughs> uh, and neither did Fellini. Well, the movie got best foreign. Yeah. Didn't it? Yeah. 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 See, nowadays it's like the country wins it, but I watched mm -hmm. the winning of this and it was like Carlo Ponti and another Italian director. It's like the producers of this movie won, just like if it were like a best picture situation. Hmm. Interesting. An Italian producer whose name is so powerful it need not be remembered. <laughs> but yeah. All right. So we have a little bit of a change up here. We've done this before, but there was a really significant short film that came out this year. So Christian, would you like to introduce our next one? We say no more. It is The Red Balloon, directed by Albert Lemorcet. It is a French film about a little boy in France who is followed by the titular Red Balloon. It follows him around, they become friends, he saves the Red Balloon, and that's to the extent of the movie. <laughs> it's like 30 minutes long, and it has the distinction of winning Best Original Screenplay the shortest winner ever. It is a lovely film. Y'all can fight me if you don't like it. I don't care. It's a perfect introduction to like a foreign feature. 
even though there's not a whole lot of talking, but like the kids, it'd be a great thing. Um, but I just wanted to highlight it just because of that important win that it got. Mm-hmm. And again, it's such a great, it's a beautifully filmed film also. Yeah. Yeah. So y'all, I assume that I say you've seen it. I know, but have Brett, have you seen it? Not before this. Nope. Okay. Well, what y'all think then? I had seen it twice before this once in first grade. Um, our teacher was like, now no one, ta- there's no words during this. So nobody talk. Shut up. <laughs> and it was on a VHS. And I was just, and then my like six, seven year old ass is like, if there's no words, then what's the fucking point? <laughs> and so like, I didn't remember anything, but now I think it's such a lovely movie about a boy and his little ghost balloon friend. Like there's just something so simple and magical about this little balloon following this boy around. Like what a pure fucking friendship these two have. And there doesn't need to be words because there's so much body language between the boy and this balloon. I can't believe I'm getting emotional about this balloon. <laughs> Honestly, though, like near the end where the, the balloon is in danger, it's like, oh my God, oh. I, I'm, I'm so concerned about this balloon. Go, go help it. Go help it. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the, the big strength of the movie is that you you grow to care about this little boy, you grow to care about his balloon, and yeah, no words said, just the two of them traveling through the city together, um, doing a variety of different actions, like with the people with the umbrellas, they'll go hang out under them for a while, or they see a blue balloon, and so the red balloon gets attached for a little bit, and of course, all the bully kids and whatnot, but yeah, I, I agree. Um Really nice short film. I agree on it's a good, like, if you want to introduce, you know, a, a child to international film and filmmaking, it's a really good place to start. Um, I found this fun fact, which I actually never put two and two together, but the balloon's color, because you said there's a, there's a blue balloon alongside this balloon, there's multiple balloons at the end, offers light and hope amongst the gray of post-war Paris. Because, I mean, the rest of the movie pretty much is colorless. Yeah. It's pretty mute. And then you have the balloon show up. And it's like, this boy has a little, you know, he's having fun. Right. He can go from school to hanging around this balloon. But, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to pick it again. Because that best original screenplay win, I mean, this is 30-some minutes. Maybe two lines of dialogue. Boom. Winner. It's really interesting. And I believe it's it's the only short film win outside of a short film category mm-hmm. ever, too. So, really unique. But, yeah. Any final thoughts on The Red Balloon? It's a perfect movie. You'll right. see it. Okay, so our next one is... Oh. <laughs> it's a controversial movie for sure. It is John Ford's The Searchers. And so... This um, film actually was not nominated for any Oscars, which is a little surprising considering um, its influence and notoriety later on. Um, It's the story of a Civil War veteran, Ethan Edwards, who did fight on the Confederate side, um, who comes home to his brother's um, little farmstead after the war. Um, 
has passed. And it's, you know, his brother, his brother's wife, who Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne, definitely has a thing with. And their two daughters and son. And so um, this family, while Ethan Edwards is out, is is attacked by um, a group of Comanche warriors and um, most of them killed, but the two daughters are kidnapped. And so this is where they become the searchers and they spend years searching for Ethan's nieces. Um, The film is controversial because of its depiction of Native American characters, um, which is not only uses um, red face, but also is just downright ugly at times, Um, you know, in terms of the violence they display. And Ethan Edwards is a super racist character um, who basically believes that anybody with, you know, quote unquote, Native blood is, there's no point to them being alive, basically. Um, that being said, it is the reason I picked it is because it is influential in the sense that AFI has it in like what their top 15 of all time. Um, yeah, number 12, and it is their number one Western of all time. Not that that means we should take it as is, but I felt the need to discuss this one because it is a big movie from 1956. And so off we go. I can start with my controversial take. Here we go. Here we go. First of all, let's Uh-oh. just be honest here. Um, after we finished our last episode, and I was scrolling down for this movies. I completely forgot we were doing the searchers. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's a surprise. Yep. Um, but yeah, um, as far as Westerns go, I do not like the genre very much. And therefore, I have to completely disagree about this being one of the best let alone the best um, stagecoach that we reviewed for the 1939 episode. Entirely better. So much fucking better. Um, The Native American representation in this, um, I can see that they attempted something in order to humanize them, but then they just fucked up completely many times. Um, I don't think it's John Ford's best directing job here. I don't think it's John Wayne's best acting here. It feels sloppier than I think a lot of people are willing to admit, mm. despite how it influenced future filmmakers. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Christian? Um, I like it. It has taken me, I think this was maybe my fourth time to watch it to actually like it. So it's not, again, it's not my favorite Western. I love Stagecoach, like Zay said. Uh, Brett and I took a class different semesters were did you watch this mm-hmm. okay so yeah I, we watched this in a class about like american film and stuff and our whole discussion was about how this has to do with communism <laughs> like the red scare because the red skins and the whole class was like whoa you're right i'm, I'm, like, I'm like really though is this what it's trying to say but sure enough, like scholars who have analyzed this kind of think the same thing because he doesn't want his niece played by Natalie Wood when she's older to become a red, a communist, and he'd rather have her dead, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, but heard that. we say that that's true. That makes the movie even more racist, I think. <laughs> it's so, this is like yeah. the time of the 50s. And for, I don't know, 
conservative listeners, it's probably the most gung-ho Americana feeling movie, if you think about it that way. Like, he doesn't want his daughter infected by the Reds. Ah. Communism ideology, or his niece, communism ideology, that he'd rather have her dead. Mm. You know? Interesting. I don't, like, because I was in the same class, I think our conversation was completely different. Jeez, interesting. How, how did we get on this? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think like we started off like because like when he would always start the class by asking the whole class like, "Did you like it? Did you dislike it?" And most people didn't like it. Um, and so we got into into the big thing about why people didn't dislike it or didn't like it, whatnot. The other big thing we talked about is like the different ways you can interpret the plot of this movie. Like for example the scene where there's a scene where Ethan Edwards goes in to find Lucy, the older daughter comes back and says that she has been killed. I killed the guys, the ones who buried her or who killed her. And I buried her. Now Ethan totally killed her. He totally killed her because she had been raped by a native character and he did not think she was worth keeping alive. And so like things like that are what we talked about, how the, it doesn't explicitly say that but it's clear like Ethan was totally banging his brother's sister as well. Like that was totally happening, but I don't know. The cinematography I think is great. If we're going to get into the good aspects of it. Um, I, I, yeah, aside from all the problematic aspects, which is hard to walk away from, it is a good movie. It's well-made. Um, it is open to interpretation at times, you know, beginning and ending with the closing of the door or the opening of the door is really cool and really influential. Um, but I agree. I could name a number of Westerns that I think are better. Multiple John Ford films I think are better. So I don't think it deserves that status whatsoever. For a Johnny Guitar. Yes, I was going to bring up Johnny Guitar. <laughs> Perfect movie. Guitar. Man Who Shot uh, Liberty Balance, another good John Ford movie. Stagecoach. Stagecoach. Um, True Grit remake. Can we forget the 2010 classic Jonah Hex? (laughs) (laughs) I took a turn I did not expect. Uh, Okay, fine. Cowboys and Aliens. Oh, that one's fun. Um, Um, Well, that film class, I just want to bring up damn, we had such an interesting conversation about the searchers, I guess, after hearing Brett's version of the class this is the same class that also hypothesized that rocky balboa might have been a homosexual interesting because he owned turtles <laughs> i'll tell you all why when we get to that part <laughs> yeah yep. it's coming <laughs> uh yeah so it says here john ford made a point to hire quote-unquote genuine american indians for the film <laughs> He was called the tall leader, appreciating the fact that he brought employment to Navajo actors, um, even though the most recognizable Native characters in the film are white. Um, well, they're, 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 Navajo, they're Navajo actors, but they're supposed to be Comanche. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also Scar, what's his name? He's a white character. He's a white actor, isn't he? He's a, he's a German actor. German actor, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, wow. I'm Native American. The 2022 Best Picture winner is going to be all about the friendships that John Ford made with the Native Americans. <laughs> it's going to be called Red Book. 
Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's going to be between that and a movie about the coronavirus for sure. So. Oh, God. oh, we had to bring it up. Parasite yep. 2. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the f- first major films to have a making of documentary requested by John Ford and influential to Lawrence of Arabia for the long shots, which we're going to cover later this season. So... Like I said, it was number 12 on the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies, and it's number one Western. So, Also, Natalie Wood is in this movie, and I love her. Yeah, Natalie Wood. Rest in peace. Yeah. This is, I read somewhere too, I think it was Wikipedia, where it's like, this is one of the most, this is one of the best movies ever made that nobody has seen. Mm. I don't come across it a lot on TCM. I mean, hmm. I never seek out to watch it. Depends on the generation, obviously. But all right. Any other thoughts on the searchers before we move on to our final movie? I don't got anything, Pilgrim. (laughs) Overrated. Go see some other westerns. Yeah, we can make a list. We can recommend it. All right, Zay, bring us home with our final movie. Our final film is The Wrong Man, directed by the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. A story in which a man played by Henry Fonda is accused of robbing a bank when he goes in uh, a few days after a bank is held up and they think he is the same guy um, who held him up that time. And he gets through a bunch of crazy shit and he has to prove whether or not he was actually the person who did it and it's a bunch of turmoil and um it's a hitchcock film based on a true events one of those very few and yeah discuss yeah speaking of that a lot of the movies from this year had their own like intros from like the directors or other people involved with the film. And this one Hitchcock introduces is really cool. Like noir shadows and whatnot saying this is different from my typical pictures. Um, Was that your best? It was my best. That's all I can do on the fly. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I really liked it. Very granular style compared to a lot of his films that I've seen during this time and kind of gritty in that way. Um, yeah, definitely different from typical Hitchcock that I'm used to and a really good performance from Henry Fonda at the center of it too. Yeah. Uh, this is the third time I had seen this and it's super good. Again, not like your standard Hitchcock. It's, it's suspenseful in a very subtle way. It's not a lot of, you know, scary moments, quote unquote, scary moments. It's a true story. Part part of it's, used for it's not totally accurate there's some stuff that was left out but that's you know hitchcock mm-hmm. but no, henry fond is really good in this i really like alongside him vera miles in it yes she's very good um i was reading i think zay's review because you mentioned her right i think so yeah yeah i don't know what you said though but you said something about her and i was like mm, interesting yeah but no I- it- well, I was thinking about how most of the film is shot in kind of realism, and then she kind of loses it at the end, and I feel like she's yeah. acting in a different movie. Yeah, but like that's 
really happened to his wife because of this. And the sad part is Hitchcock's like, she recovered. Well, she didn't actually recover from that mental breakdown of hers. Oh. Yeah, I don't see it. I was like, Hitch, why do you want a happy ending for this one? Yeah, I know. That was kind of weird. I know. Like, I guess because it's like, oh, justice is served. He's innocent, whatever. But yeah. I liked reading that the Hitchcock did take out some details from the true story to make the audience wonder if Henry Fonda's character really did do it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I, I liked Vera Miles too. I did think her part of the narrative where she does suffer the breakdown is, although it's it's true to the story, it took me out of the rest of the movie, kind of like what you were mentioning, Zay. And so that was one of the weaker parts of the film for me, even if it was kind of necessary. The transitions there, there between her kind of narrative and Henry Fonda's narrative just didn't mesh too well for me. But mm-hmm. yeah. I also love like Henry Fonda, the fear in his face and his eyes throughout this movie. And then there comes a point where he finally like smiles. And that moment in the movie is like so surprisingly reassuring and nice mm-hmm. and kind of impacted me and came out of nowhere. So good job by Hitchcock with that character. And this came out the same year as his remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. I know, Christian, you rewatched it, didn't you? Yes. Fred, did you? I watched it, yes. Loved it. Um, I didn't like it as much as I used to like it. But hey, I... You know, you know that I used to like it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Um, but I think it's interesting how different the two movies are. Like, they both rely on suspense, but they do them in such different ways. Mm -hmm. Because The Man Who Knew Too Much is definitely really over the top, while The Wrong Man is very subtle and down to earth. Yeah, Wrong Man is his, like, indie movie, (laughs) while Man Who Knew Too Much is his big summer blockbuster. It's like when Spielberg did The Post and Ready Player One in the same year. (laughs) Yeah. Or, war, wow, War of the Worlds and Munich in the same year. Mm. Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. There you go. All over the place. Wow. Um, I will also say that I saw this as a setup to make Psycho. Because I was looking at the mm. years of Albert Hitchcock Presents, and it had only been on a year. And he used the people from his TV show to make Psycho. But this is almost saying, like, if I can make a TV show, and a smaller film, I can make another smaller film, but even more intense than anything I've ever done before. Interesting. It's like one step in the right direction. Was the black and white a conscious choice or was that more of a budgetary thing? Do we know? I want to feel like it's a conscious choice. I I do too, because I think that's really effective. Because everywhere I see, like this is labeled as noir too. Yeah. I feel like I read something about that, but I don't remember now. Hmm. Imagine this is in Technicolor and you have like a big musical number like, (laughs) (laughs) He just puts K-Sarasra in both movies to make sure he doesn't get the Oscar. Vera Miles having a breakdown. K-Sarasra. No, Henry Fonda singing K-Sarasra. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, um, yeah, I think we even covered all our fast facts kind of going through that. Fast but, facts? Sorry, fun facts. <laughs> fast facts. Fast facts. 
we do breeze through them. Um, I, I'm really interested that the reviews were mixed to negative, though. Um, I guess I, it makes sense knowing that this was so different from Hitchcock's other films probably wasn't what critics were expecting from it. I mean, they were probably expecting, like, well, what came before this? Uh, what's the one with the window? Uh... <laughs> what's the one with the window? Rear window. Oh, were you actually uh, asking? I thought... <laughs> no, I literally forgot the title for a second. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought you were messing around. No, no, no. I literally forgot the title. No. But, I mean, that's suspenseful, you know? And this is, like, so subtle, like, back. It's like, hey, maybe he did it. I don't know. Let's, let's see, man. <laughs> True. It was also his last picture for Warner Brothers before he returned to Paramount. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Fun studio facts. Right. Fast facts. <laughs> Whatever. It also, it also prompted Jean-Luc Godard, his longest piece of written criticism, which I didn't I wasn't able to find, but I really want to know what the hell it said. Yeah, true. <laughs> And it also influenced Taxi Driver. Wait, wasn't Jean-Luc Godard part of like the Cashews de Cinema? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Yeah. Yeah. Probably somewhere in there. He saw a lot of French and Henry Fonda sad eyes. <laughs> Bonjour. All right. So are we ready for honorable mentions next? Indeed. I didn't forget them this time. <laughs> Good. Okay, so First keeping on Hitchcock. <laughs> Keeping on Hitchcock, like Zay mentioned, um, he also released The Man Who Knew Too Much this year, which I thought was great. We're going to lose The Man Who Knew Too Much 1930s original version, but I think this one blows that one out of the water. Oh, yeah. I agree. As Zay just sits there and looks at us. (laughs) I I haven't seen that one in a while, so... Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Umberto D, which I mentioned when we were talking about Lestrada. Great movie. Um, you're going to see it in my personal wins nominations for sure. Uh, written on the Wind, Best Supporting Actress winner that year. Another fantastic melodrama. Dorothy Malone. Uh, we also have Bigger Than Life. Another great melodrama. I was fucking shook watching this. Interesting. I watched it because they told me to watch it. And I was stupid in thinking it's like a sci-fi movie, but it's not. It's just about like addiction to meds. <laughs> I don't know. The miracle cure. Uh, the Bad Seed horror film, uh, which I just watched the other night. Okay. Yeah. All right. Really enjoyed it. Rhoda. I wanted that for it's odd because it's one of the few horror films from the 50s and it got Academy Award nominations. Yep. Interesting. Uh, Baby Doll. Um, oh, that's me. Hi. Okay, I guess nobody else saw but me. Nope. Uh, who is it? Elia Kazan. And it's about a woman who's like, I think she's 20. She could be 18. I don't remember. But anyway, she's married to Carl Malden and she sleeps in a fucking crib and he promises that he wouldn't consummate the marriage until she came of age. And then he fucks up with Eli Wallach's character and Eli is like, in turn, hey, guess what, Carl Malden? I'm gonna fuck your baby doll. Oh. That's the movie. All and right. it's Tennessee Williams, so it's hot and steamy and southern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Brett, you skipped Lust for Life. I think it's because it's oh, hard oops. to see. I, <laughs> I watched Lust for Life yesterday, and even though the sun glares into the living room, I could not for the life of me see maybe 80% of the movie. It was so dark. Yeah, about Vincent Van Gogh. Oscar winner oh, Anthony Quinn. I didn't even realize. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, skip that one. Uh, Rodan or Rodan? Rodan. I say Rodan. I don't know. It's Japanese. It's Rodan. And the Golden Girls are Rodan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fun Japanese kaiju film. All right. It's like Godzilla, but a bird. A pterodactyl. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so, War and Peace, which I wanted to watch because it was best director nominated, but then I saw how long it was and decided, nope. Terrible, no good, very bad. How dare they make this the first Audrey Hepburn film I don't like? Wow. Wow. That sounds like I made a good decision. Uh, Tea and Sympathy. Very good. A movie I love. Everyone needs to see Tea and Sympathy. <laughs> I watched it again this morning. It's so good. Uh, Vincent Minnelli. When he does a good drama, it's fucking good. Lit. All right. And also, it's a little, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all see all at home can't see my hand actions. (laughs) Um, We have Bus Stop, which was originally on our watch list with Marilyn Monroe. It's a very well-acted film. That's my only positive for that film. Everyone acts very well. That's it. All right. I didn't get to see it. All right. We have Anastasia, or as um, we American folks say, Anastasia. Uh, I can't that there was music in this (laughs) because of the cartoon version, and he, like, bought into it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I get a text from Christian saying, oh, this song in the movie is really great. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize there was music in it. Okay. And they're like, oh my gosh, I thought you were talking about the 1997 version. I'm like, well, I haven't seen that in 20 years, so I wouldn't know. No, this version, uh, Oscar winner Ingrid Bergman, she's good. The rest is not so good. That's so dull. It's so yeah. boring. Uh, Somebody Up There Likes Me is our next film. A boxing movie with Paul Newman, and it shot him to literal stardom. Also, Pierre Angeli is his wife in the movie, and she is amazing. She's an Italian actress. And by amazing, she's so fucking good in it. Nice. Um, A Short Vision. It's a very creepy short film that I made Christian and Brett watch. It's about... Um, the Cold War. That's all I'm going to tell you. Go find it. It's on YouTube. Check it out. Oh, freaky. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, the Rainmaker. It's me, Catherine Hepburn, playing a woman who's supposed to be 20, but I'm 50 at this point. <laughs> and yeah, it's all a right. bad movie. It's a movie where <laughs> Burt Lancaster has to convince her she's not ugly. Oh, all right. And I'm like, oh boy, do I love feminism. <laughs> also, it's a musical called 110 The Shade, and the most famous song is called Raunchy. <laughs> and I'm going to now sing a bit of it with a Captain Captain voice, because it will go, 
oh, I feel so raunchy. Speaking <laughs> <laughs> up five and ten. Oh my god. Wow. Uh, Storm Center with Betty Davis. Correct? Yes. Where she plays a weather reporter. <laughs> I had YouTube convinced of so many different things. <laughs> like they thought this was about a hurricane. <laughs> Oh no, I yeah, I literally went into this not knowing anything. And I was like, oh, storm center, Betty Davis in a hurricane. <laughs> the common theme of the year, though, is communism, because this is about a librarian who allows, like, the communist manifesto into her library, and that upsets the white villagers of her city, including this very impressionable boy. Impressionable boy. And there's a whole fucking extra scene with him yelling at her, and it's funny. But the movie is serious. Mm. It's it's pretty good. We have the brave one for which Dalton Trumbo uh, won the Oscar, though not under his name because he was blacklisted uh, for best original story. It is like the live action Ferdinand the Bull. Mm. That's All right. everybody's dubbed except for the boy who's British, but he's he's supposed to be Mexican. So like, <laughs> jeez. Uh, another sci-fi Forbidden Planet. Very good. Very catch. All right. Fine. The sets of it are amazing. Nice. Um, a true amazing five-star movie short film, Night and Fog. Feel good film of the year. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Which is, it's Auschwitz, right? Like that's the one. Yeah. Um, basically films what it's like, you know, 12 years after uh, you know, 11, 10 years, 11 years after the Holocaust ended there. Um, it's, pretty really much haunting. Like, it's pretty much like, look at this field of wildflowers. Well, there are bodies under this field. Yeah. Brett and nice. I walked it in a class. It's haunting for sure. And last but not least, The Killing from Stanley Kubrick, which I just watched today and thought was really, really good. And so, like Christian said, you described it as a better version of the Asphalt Jungle. I would say much better version. Literally, like same actor Sterling Hayden, but amazingly ten times better than that movie. Yeah. All right. So now we'll go into what we normally do, and we will go through um, our typical categories: screenplay, acting, director, and picture, and give our top five or however many we have for each. I'm so nervous because none of these. Oh my god, nothing's going to be consistent. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking as well. All right, let's go ahead and start with best original screenplay for which the Red Balloon won. Um, Zay, what do you have here? Number five, we have La Strada. Number four, Storm Center. Three, The Girl Can't Help It. Two, The Red Balloon. One, Umberto D. Nice. All right, Christian, what do you got? Okay, so just a side note, because I'm very weird with my years, I'm choosing to not put La Strada on anything, because I'm going to save that mm. for my personal 54 rankings. So I only have four original screenplays, because there was not a whole lot I saw that was original. So number four, I have a movie called Julie, in which Doris Day is running from her very abusive boyfriend, and he hijacks a plane that aged very well. Number three, I have The Brave One. Number two, The Red Balloon. And by golly, number one, Storm Center. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, 
my number five is the girl can't help it. Number four is, um, was the wrong man original? I think it's based on articles. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Uh, but anyway, number three, the red balloon, number two, Lestrada, and number one, Umberto D, uh, which I don't know if we mentioned it was actually released in 1952 in Italy, but was eligible for these years, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and I didn't have that online only because I didn't watch it for this because forgot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Best adapted screenplay. Zay, what do you got? For number five, The Burmese Harp, which was nominated for Best Foreign Language that year, Jeff. Japan. Uh, Four, Written on the Wind. Three, The Ten Commandments. Two, Bigger Than Life. And number one, Tea and Sympathy. All right. Christian, how about you? Looks like God was nominated for Zay's category there for the Ten Commandments. I did too. That was my number three. I said nominated. God didn't win. <laughs> so adapted. I have the bad seed at number five, number four, bigger than life, the wrong man, giant, and my winner, also T and Sympathy. All right. So at number five, I have the bad seed. Number four, I have invasion of the body snatchers. Number three, I have the Ten Commandments. Number two, I have The Man Who Knew Too Much. And at number one, I have The Killing. This is the only one not to put God in my nomination. <laughs> this is really interesting. All right. Fuck it, Jesus. This is my God now. <laughs> Kathy Griffin, 2010. Perfect. Whenever she won the Emmy. All right, Zay, let's hear your five for Best Supporting Actor. Supporting actor. Number five, Yul Brenner for the Ten Commandments. Number four, Arthur O'Connell for Bus Stop. Number three, Robert Stack for Written on the Wind. Number two, James Dean for Giant. And number one, I think this is a Gildan Films first, Napoleon from Bertotti, the dog. Oh. <laughs> he is a good fucking actor he is he did so many oh. things in that movie i didn't even think about that you still got the dog population to listen <laughs> wow that's amazing i love it i applaud that we have no rules might as well <laughs> christian what do you got all right so for my number five, Anthony Quinn for Lust for Life, because he steals the scenes from Kirk Douglas. I'm sorry. Uh, number four, Eli Wallach for Baby Doll. Number three, Robert Stack, Written on the Wind, which many say he should have won in the first place. There's a whole story about that. Go look it up. Number two, Jeffrey Hunter for The Searchers, who is the step-nephew of John Wayne. And number one, I have James Dean for Giant. All right. Or I guess if we're talking about because we have no rules, fine. The corpse of James Dean in Giant. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. God. <laughs> All right. And number five, you're, you're going to have to help me out. Um, Alicia, Elisha Cook, I'm not sure. He's in The oh. Killing. Yeah, Elisha Cook. Something okay. like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number four, Yule Brenner for The Ten Commandments. Number three, Arthur O'Connell from Bus Stop. 
Number two, Richard Basehart from La Strada. And number one, James Dean, once again, for Giant. So he definitely ruled amongst humans that year. <laughs> he did get my number two. <laughs> All right, let's hear, Zay, your five for supporting actress. Okay, my five for best supporting actress. Number five, Sarah Montiel for the movie Serenade. Not a good movie, but some good performances in it, so don't look it up. Um, number four, Betty Field in Bus Stop. Number three, Marjorie Mang in Friendly Persuasion. Two, Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind. And one for Patty McCormick in The Bad Seed. Honorable yeah. mention to Samantha the Goose. <laughs> 100%. Christian, what do you got? All right. I just want to make sure I get these names right. Okay. So at number five, I have Anne Baxter in The Ten Commandments, who played Nefertiri. These names, right, because I'm sorry that these two people look the same to me. Yvonne DiCarlo is my number four for the Ten Commandments. He played Sephora. I, I think that's Moses' wife. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> number three, Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind. Number two, Miss Vera Miles for The Wrong Man. And number one, Rhoda herself, The Bad Seed, Miss Patty McCormick. All right. Yeah, sorry, stopping my video because Haley's going to stop in and get some stuff real quick. Okay. Okay. Um, my number five is Ann Baxter for The Ten Commandments. Number four is Marie Windsor for The Killing. Number three oh, is... Oh, yeah, she's in that, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Number three, Marjorie Maine for Friendly Persuasion. Number two, Patty McCormick for The Bad Seed. And number one, Vera Miles for The Wrong Man. If we average out the votes, Patty won, and that's all I care about. Yep, that's fine with me. I actually had Vera Miles number one just like today, but like the more I thought about it, the more Patty McCormick's performance like sticks with me. True, that's fair. All right, Zay, let's hear your best leading actor. Leading actor. Do, 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 do. Okay, my number five is Mario Lanza for again the movie Serenade. Number four is Rock Hudson in Written on the Wind. Ooh. Number three is Don Murray in Bus Stop. Two is James Mason in Bigger Than Life. And number one, Carlo Battisti in Umberto D. All right. Christian? I have number five, Paul Newman for Somebody Up There Likes Me. Number four, John Wayne for The Searchers. Number three, Henry Fonda for The Wrong Man. Number two, James Mason for Bigger Than Life. And my number one is John Kerr for Tea and Sympathy. Mm. Which you have to see that movie, Brett. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Number five, I have Gary Cooper for Friendly Persuasion. Why? Because this is a weak <laughs> AF category. Weak AF. Um, number four, James Stewart for The Man Who Knew Too Much. Number three, Anthony Quinn for La Strada. Number two, Henry Fonda for The Wrong Man. And number one, Carlo Battisti for Umberto D. So if I would have seen Umberto D. <laughs> <laughs> yep, totally. 
All right, Zay, leading actress. Well, here we All go. Right. For number five, we have Lauren Bacall in Written on the Wind. Number four, Jane Mansfield in The Girl Can't Help It. Number three, Barbara Rush in Bigger Than Life. Number two, Deborah Carr in Tea and Sympathy. Number one, Julieta Messina in La Strada. All right. Christian, what do you got? I have good old Dame Elizabeth Taylor for Giant as my number five. Number four, Pierre Angeli for Somebody Up There Likes Me. Again, such an amazing performance. Uh, number three, Carol Baker for Baby Doll. Number two, Nancy Kelly for The Bad Seed. And my number one most likely would have been for Lestrada. But again, so my number one is Deborah Carr in The key, Teen Sympathy. <laughs> All right. My number five is Deborah Carr in The King and I. Ooh. My number four is Elizabeth Taylor in Giant. My number three is Ingrid Bergman in Anastasia. Number two, Nancy Kelly in The Bad Seed. And number one, Julieta Messina in La Strada. So if I would have included La Strada. <laughs> you in these Italian films, I'm telling you. <laughs> Is it my fault America's like, you know what? Let's start releasing these movies like five years later. You're not a very good Pope, Christian. <laughs> not voting for your Italian members. No, that is fair. Because when we, I, I will not, when I actually publish my top 10 1956, La Strada will probably not be in there. I'll put it in 1954. Same with Umberto D. So, all right. Best director. Zay, let's hear your top five. My top five. Number five, Douglas Sirk for Written on the Wind. Number four, Nicholas Ray for Bigger Than Life. Number three, Vittorio De Sica for Umberto Di. Two, Vincent Minnelli for Tea and Sympathy. One, Cecil B. DeMille for The Ten Commandments. All right. Hmm. All right, Christian, what do you got? I have number five, Vincent Minnelli for Teen Sympathy. Number four, Alfred Hitchcock for The Man Who Knew Too Much. Number three, Mr. George Stevens for Giant. Number two, Cecil B. DeMille for The Ten Commandments. And Zay is going to hit me, but number one, John Ford for The Searchers. Oh. Ow. <laughs> All right. At number five, I have Federico Fellini. For La Strada. Oh, you're back. No, I'm back. Number four, I have Cecil B. DeMille for The Ten Commandments. Number three, I have Vittorio De Sica for Umberto D. Number two, Alfred Hitchcock for The Man Who Knew Too Much. And number one, I have Stanley Kubrick for The Killing. Yeah, love what he does with that timeline. All right, we have arrived. Did you read the fun facts about the timeline? I didn't know. Okay. I'll tell you after. Is it going to ruin my number one director choice? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have come down to best picture. Otherwise our top 10 of the year for 1956. So Zay, let's hear yours starting at number 10. I did not include short films, but if I did, this list would look very different because this was apparently a really good year for short films. True. So number 10, the 10 commandments. The only Best Picture nominee on my list. Number nine, La Strada. Eight, uh, Man Escaped, a uh, French foreign film. Seven, Written on the Wind. 
the bad seed number five the burmese harp number four the girl can't help it three bigger than life two umberto d and number one tea and sympathy all right christian all right so my number 10 is the searchers number nine written on the wind number eight giant number seven the ten commandments and that ends the Best Picture nominees for me at number seven there. Number six, The Wrong Man. Number five, Storm Center. Number four, Tea and Sympathy. Number three, The Bad Seed. Number two, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And number one, K. Sarah, Sarah, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Ooh, all right. Okay. At number 10, I have Giant. At number eight, or sorry, number nine, I have The Bad Seed. At number eight, I have The Ten Commandments, and that ends Best Picture Noms for me. Number seven, I have The Searchers. Number six, I have The Wrong Man. Number five, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Number four, La Strada. Number three, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Number two, The Killing. And number one, which technically did not come out in 1956, is Umberto D. So if I was just doing films that came out in 1956, if the Academy Awards were normal, um, it would go to The Killing. But otherwise, since it was eligible this year, Umberto D. Wow, though, The Killing. I loved it. Not quite a five-star. Like, I had one five-star movie that was eligible here, and it was Umberto D. And so, but yeah, That's I loved it. That's because you didn't watch Tea and Sympathy. That's true. Could change. And you didn't watch Storm Center either. <laughs> also true. And it's me, James Mason. You also didn't watch Bigger Than Life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, James Mason. What a get. How long ago did you die? (laughs) Don't worry about it. I was in A Star is Born with Judy. (laughs) How's she doing? Don't worry about it. (laughs) Lolita. (laughs) This is sure to gain listeners. We have James Mason on with us. In <laughs> Hello, thank you. Thank you very much. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Thanks to all of you for listening, including those of you who just love James Mason. <laughs> we have covered a collection of films from 1956. Um, so be sure to tune in next time where we will have Zay back on with us and hey. we will cover... Yeah, we'll cover the Best Picture nominees and other films from 1981. Let me tell you something. something. Chariots of Fire, it's right up there, or excuse me, right down there with Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, wow. Even with that theme song. Okay. We'll talk to you then. Um, As always, thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, all the social media. Um, check out gildedfilms.com and be sure to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks as always to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music. Um, and as always, this was a lot of fun. Zay, any final thoughts from you? No. All right. Peace out. I mean, thanks for y'all for having me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks I for have, joining us. I have some final thoughts. Go for it. We are living in a dark time right now.
listen to our other episodes or else. And wash your damn hands. And wash your damn hands. 20 seconds. Soap and water. Warm water. Do it. But thank you for listening once again. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks,